Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here with the 2022 New Year's episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. It has been a quiet couple of weeks on the news front, and as I was chatting with uh, folks here on Twitch before, I don't really always cover all of the D&D news. I don't, I don't think it is necessarily the purpose of this show to cover all D&D news. If you are interested in, in, in hearing very smart people talk about all of the news of D&D, I highly recommend the Mastering Dungeons podcast by my two friends, Sean Merwin and Teos Abadia. They're two very smart designers and developers in the 5e space who do a show every week where they cover all of the news related to D&D. It's a fantastic show. I love it. And I really recommend you listen to that. I try to cover specific bits of news that, that really catch my interest and attention, things to which I believe that my commentary may be fun or interesting. So I usually cover that. And because it has been a holiday week, a couple of holiday weeks here uh, these past two weeks. There really hasn't been a lot of news, which is good because that gives me an opportunity to catch up with a lot of different things. So we only have three items uh, to talk about on today's show. And uh, however, they are some pretty big items. So first, I like to give a little update on what's going on with the Lazy DMs Companion. This is the Kickstarter that I ran back in October and the book that I'm working on now. And it is in a wonderful state. We have all of the art and all of the maps except one piece. There is one map still outstanding, mostly due to me and how I was scheduling it. We managed to get a lot of the art done in parallel, but and when you do in parallel, there's always one last piece. So we have one last map that we are waiting for, but all of the rest of the maps are in and they are great. And I wanted to do a showcase. I did a showcase of some of this art in a previous episode, but I've done more. So this is by Neil, Neil Crabtree Levesey, known as the Dungeon Baker who has these two beautiful and awesome and very usable maps. I wanted to create maps that you could use for a lot of different purposes. So we have a cavern map and we have a, that you can sort of reuse and repurpose for your own games. Those are cool. Saga McKenzie, who's available on Twitter. I will have uh, links to all of their Twitter profiles. So if you want to reach out to these artists, you can. Did this incredible in. Uh, this is a two-level inn and tavern that includes an underground set of cellars and secret little dungeon underneath. Outstanding map. She is the one that is also doing the final map of this book, which is a manor, a pretty big manor map that we're going to do for, for all of your heists and things like that. I thought it was important to have a three-level manor. So that is the final map, and that will hopefully be done in the middle of January, and then we will put the rest of the book together, and at the end of January, the whole PDF will be available and sent to all the backers who back who back the book and available for purchase. Chloe Ballard did these two beautiful point crawl maps. These just were incredible. I wanted to have two maps that I thought really kind of grabbed onto the concept of point crawls. So this is an overland point crawl map. And it's a little, this one's a little kind of fun. It's got a lot of little Easter eggs. The, the key is like, you can see that there's all of these paths connecting these little locations together. So it is not a geographic map. This, this doesn't cover distance. Instead, it shows major locations and the paths that go between them. And we're not labeling them because we want you to be able to kind of go through and let your own imagination label these paths. So that is the overland one. And then we have an underground one, which is a much clearer kind of point crawl map. There's some little Easter eggs for some people who are fans of previous Life Flourish work in this. But this one is kind of shows how you can have an underground point crawl with tunnels and passageways and even teleportation portals that connect different locations together. So those are to, to give the idea of point crawls, but also to I'll give you some maps that you could actually use and, and have some fun with. And then Matt Morrow did all of the internal spot art in the book. So all of the pictures of the book that are in here come from Matt Morrow. 
And these are a couple of the final pictures that he sent over. We have our nice, there's actually one picture that I don't think is in. I didn't, for some reason, I didn't get a copy of it in here, but there's one last piece. It's a cool, like old ruin, uh, big underground statues. I always love this. Oh, I did manage to get in here. Uh, big, I love these like, huge statues in a huge sarcophagus on a podium with like tiny little people in the front. It's kind of, you know, always go big and go old. And then this, this other piece, which I hadn't shown before, which is a, uh, a general piece for like a session zero, right? That's like the spot art for a session zero. So, so we like that. And then these are the, the pieces of art that I had, that I had shown previously. So yeah, so really cool, you know, really cool art. I'm really happy with how this is coming out and I can't wait for that one final piece. And when we get that final piece, I'll show that off, but also it will be in the book and then it'll be done. So that is the latest for the art of the Lazy DMs Companion. Very exciting stuff. Really, really cool. So the I'm going to do kind of two big topics today. And topic number one, I wanted to talk about notable third-party products, notable third-party fifth edition products that I've seen over 2021. And I picked out 10, 10 products. So this is not a best of list. These are, these are definitely products that I think are outstanding outstanding examples of third-party products. In some cases are actually, I snuck in like, you know, three products in one. And they are, so I, I didn't want to rank them as like one to 10. So they're in alphabetical order. I'll go ahead and click the link and get rid of the surprise. I, I listed them in alphabetical order. And I, I really think that these are excellent examples of the best third-party products I have seen for fifth edition in this past year. There are definitely excellent products that are not on this list. So this list is not complete. There's so much great stuff. And a lot of it was I didn't have the time to, to really dig deep into everything that's out there. And I probably forgot about some. One thing I did do is I, I set out a, uh, a tweet and said, hey, what were your favorite third-party products? And a lot of different ones were mentioned. Many of the ones that are on this list were mentioned, but I'm going to include uh, that link to this, to this Twitter thread so that you can see it as well. The first one, which came up a lot, like many, many people who brought up what are the best third-party products brought this one up. And I, of course, recognize it as an excellent third-party product. It is one that I have not done like a deep review on on the show, A, because it comes out every month, right? And I don't think I could cover it that often. And B, I don't think they need my help because there's a lot of attention applied to it. And that is Arcadia. Arcadia is a monthly online magazine put out by uh, Matt Colville, MCDM, Matt Colville's design company. My friend James Intercasso is the lead editor of this of this magazine. He's a fantastic dude. He's one of my favorite people in the RPG industry. Really good friend. And he puts together this magazine. They have 11 issues of it right now. You can get it by subscribing to the, uh, the MCDM Patreon. I think it's 10 bucks. Uh, a month now to join and for 10 bucks you get access to all of the previous issues plus the current issue plus all future issues so it, was, it, it was a, it is a very good deal and it is a usually about a 20-ish page magazine that covers about three big topics so this is really mcdm's take on Dra dungeon and dragon magazine right this is really really cool stuff one thing is like so the, the editing is outstanding the editing and the art direction Every part of this magazine, like as a thinking that you're getting this on a Patreon is amazing. Like, boy, it pushes the envelope on what's available on Patreon because it's a full product on its own. It is a it is a clear thing. And the issues, I think, go for 10 bucks uh, an issue if you buy them separately. Uh, 
really wide range of different authors, very diverse set of authors that write for this. From people, many people that I know, many people that I've worked with or that I've that I've talked to and then people that are recognizable in the industry write for this. And they cover all different kinds of topics from character options, small adventures, monster groups, all kinds of great DM stuff. And the and the, the art, like that was uh, the art in particular was something where I know Matt Colville was very interested in sort of capturing the the wonder of the art of the original Dungeon and Dragon magazine. But nobody, James talks about this, that nobody actually does art the same way they used to do art back then. Everybody's doing art digitally. But I think that this shows the power of, of, of what the digital medium can do for art. And it's just, you know, it's it's outstanding stuff. The, 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 the magazine is great. And every month it comes in and every month I'm just blown away by how great it is. Recognize that I am biased in this. I do have a an article in one of the issues of Arcadia, an article called The Grim Accord, which is an evil adventuring party. I don't remember which issue it's in, seven, I think, something like that, six or seven. And it was great fun to do that. And I am I have the honor of being able to work on another article for them that is coming out probably late next year. So we have an, we have an article, issue six, thank you. So we have I have another article coming out next year which I'm very excited about. Already written, already in Intercasso's, James, James's hands. So Arcadia is a really, really wonderful product. Uh, the next one I wanna talk about is The Book of Fiends by Green Ronin. This is a book done by Robert Schwab. Robert Schwab is an amazing designer in the D&D and sort of wider D&D sphere. Robert Schwab invented the game Shadow of the Demon Lord, a really excellent D20-ish game built around crazy horror and stuff like that. Really, really fun, really, really fun stuff that he makes. And Green Ronin hired him to do a book of the worst monsters possible for D&D. Great, great big book available from Green Ronin. Really dark, twisted art. Don't look at that, it's ugly. Really cool stuff. And Rob, Rob Schwab is just known as one of the most prolific authors in this space. And his, his text is just outstanding stuff. Very cool monsters, all different kinds of stuff. Really, you know, dark, grim kind of stuff. I really, I really dug it. It was a, it was a crowdfunded campaign. It wasn't crowdfunded on Kickstarter. I don't remember where it was crowdfunded, but you can now, you can now pick it up uh, as both a PDF. And I think you, I don't know if the hardcover is available yet, but it's, but it's a very cool book. So if you were looking for really dark, twisted monsters, check out, definitely check out uh, the Book of Fiends by Rob Schwab for Green Ronin. The Complete Guide to Monsters. So this is another one where I have to uh, give the disclaimer that I have an article in this book. If you're not familiar with the Kobold Guides, the Kobold Guides are excellent DM resources to understand the outer bounds of this game that we love. It, it, they, are, they are small paperback collections of essays from lots of different creators in this industry. I've, I'm very lucky that I have, I have a number of essays in these books. And the Kobold Guide to Monsters was one in particular that just came out this past year. Uh, Wolfgang Bauer writes in it, Celeste Conowich, Monty Cook, Crystal Frazier, some jackass named Mike Shea, Steve Winner, and, and many others. And they, all of these books, it's like if you wanted to capture the best blog articles about the RPG space, these books are a great way to do it. You can pick them on PDF if you just want to read them on a phone or on, on, your, on, your, on your computer, or you can pick up the physical books. I actually go buy all the physical books because I like having them on the shelf. And they're just wonderful books that, that talk about the design of things. The, the all different kinds of stuff here, the concepting of monsters. This is not a book that gives you monsters, right? This is a book that talks about how to 
uh, use monsters in really effective ways, ways to think about monsters differently. I wrote uh, an article in here about the divine art of reskinning monsters, all the different ways that we can reskin monsters for our games. And there's lots of different, Sean, hey, there's my friend Sean Merwin, all, and, and you know, a wide range of really, really talented writers and really people who have thought a lot about this game in one essay, in one, in one book, really excellent stuff. Iskandar. Iskandar is a city source book written by M.T. Black. I think it's five bucks on DriveThruRPG. And it is the beginning of his larger, of, of M.T. Black's larger Iskandar campaign. Instead of building a big campaign book that has like a giant 200, 300 pages of stuff, he is building it in small pieces and putting each of those small pieces out there one at a time. And Iskandar is a really excellent example of how to build a useful source book. It is, you know, it's about 100 pages. I'm sorry, it's 112 pages. So it's not small, but it is really, really a good, fun, useful book. It is meant to be like read on a smaller device. So you can see big fonts. And that's why I guess it's 112 pages. Really, really great book. I, I, I like it a lot. And for five bucks for a city source book, you cannot, you cannot beat it. Going on the other side of like small to large, like Iskandar is a relatively small product. And then on the other side, we have like Level Up 5e. Level Up 5e is a bunch, is, is three books together that are basically a plug-in replacement for the fifth edition of D&D. So you can buy just these books and play with just these books and play a fifth edition version of D&D with their with their take. This is made by Nworld, made by Nworld and Nworld Publishing put this book put these books together. I'm focusing on the monstrous menagerie because I'm a DM and I like monsters. And if you look at this book it is a really interesting take on how on, on on their version of monsters. There's a lot of interesting design things, some of which I really, really like. The their idea of ensuring that legendary resistances of legendary monsters actually have a physical manifestation in the world, I think is really brilliant. And I'm stealing it and putting it into all my all my stuff from, from here on out. Great big pile of books. If you buy the three books, it's more than a thousand pages of stuff. And the neat thing about the design of uh, Level Up 5e is that any part of it can be plugged it can be taken out and plugged into your 5e game. So you can run 5e character classes next to level up character classes. You can pick one monster out of this and just run that one monster in your 5e game. All of it is cross compatible. So you can either play all 5e with one tiny piece of level up, or you can play all level up with one tiny piece of 5e or play them completely separately. I think that was a really interesting and really smart design. A lot of energy and effort went into this stuff. And I think it is definitely worth paying attention to and, and if you think it, it's up your alley, then then picking it up. I really, I really, I really dig it. Back in the third edition days, back in the third edition days of D&D, Monty Cook, the, the legendary RPG designer Monty Cook, who was working with Wizards of the Coast on the third edition of D&D, he built his own homebrew campaign world to test out third edition. And he built it into a single one to 20, uh, a first to 20th level uh, campaign world that's set in a single city called Tolus, uh, P-T-O-L-U-S, Tolus. He went back, I, I guess, so people at MCG, at Monty Cook Games, went back and took Tolus, cleaned it up, modernized a lot of it, and then put it out for both 5th edition and the Cypher system of the game. And this is the 5th edition version. It is a 674-page campaign city campaign source book high fantasy not you know very very traditional kind of approach so not sort of high science fiction uh, really really cool uh book mass if you can buy a physical version the physical version is like a phone book i have it sitting right here 
on my shelf. There it is. Beautiful book, beautiful stuff, great art, great maps, just an outstanding, massive tome. And what's really interesting is when you take like MC, uh, when you take MT Black's Iskandar on one side and you take Tolis on the other side, you have these two extreme examples of looking at D&D cities, right? And for some people, certainly, Iskandar is far more approachable. You can jump right in and go. However, I also argue that Tolis, you, you don't have to read 675 pages to get value out of it. They have short guides that sort of say, here's the one neighborhood you're going to want to start in, and here are the hooks that you want to run for your low-level characters. So it is a very approachable book, even though it's a massive, massive book, but really well-regarded from the people that played it back in, back in the third, the third edition days and now has grown up and expanded and, and, and hardened. And I think it's just a really cool artifact of what's possible for, for D&D. So really, really cool, really cool stuff. Scarlet Citadel. Scarlet Citadel is a mega dungeon adventure written by Steve Winter. Steve Winter has been writing and been involved in D&D since I believe at least the second edition days of D&D, maybe even earlier than the second edition days. So he's got 30-ish years, more than 30 years of experience in D&D. And he put together a sort of traditional mega dungeon crawl, but with modern, I would say it's a traditional dungeon crawl with modern sensibilities, as I put it. And my wife said, what does that mean? And I said, well, it, it has, it is a relatively, it does have a story, but it's a little bit more story light than you might expect an adventure these days. It doesn't have a great big overarching, great big overarching storyline, but it's got lots of interesting individual storylines that take place. But it is primarily an opportunity for characters to get together, go down into an ancient dungeon and, and explore all the way down. It has, a very Greyhawk feel to it. If you were if you were familiar with the old Greyhawk dungeon and the classic dungeon, but by modern sensibilities, the design is built around what we know works well for adventures. So very approachable, very easy to pick up and read. Very you know very straightforward design, and beautiful full color maps, including a physical map pack that has something like twenty different maps to the levels in here with overlays that can change rooms depending on what's going on. Those are available both for VTTs for virtual tabletops and available physical. If you have a physical game the map packs are outstanding i think wolfgang said like yeah they're they're taking a bath on the on them because they're so there's so much value for so for such cheap i think it's 50 bucks for like 20 maps it's a really good deal and they're laminated full dry erase maps these are not just paper maps they are really really beautiful maps so that's what i kind of mean by by you know that kind of standard sensibility beautiful artwork as always for all cobalt press wonderful design uh really cool adventure i hope to i hope to run this one day here's an example of the overlays where like you have these big vats of acid and then they explode and they put acid all over the ground so you can drop on an overlay right onto the map to show the vats of acid really cool uh i like scarlet citadel uh, uh a lot it's very cool shadowed keep on the borderlands by raging swan so this is another uh, example. You, you'll see there's a lot of like, you know, here's Scarlet Citadel on one side and here's uh, Shadow Keep on the other side. Here's Iskandar, here's Tolis. A lot of different kinds of, 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 of products that sort of sit side by side, but take different approaches. This is another sort of classic take of uh, traditional adventures or modern take on classic adventures. Shadow Keep on the Borderlands takes the idea of Keep on the Borderlands and Village of Hamlet and kind of mashes these together into sort of one one adventure. The neat thing about this 5e version of Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands is that it has been well tested for now for I think a couple of years. So the 5e version just came out in 2021, but it is based on a OGL version of the game that has been around for longer. So a lot of things have been cleaned up. It is a really cool design, black and white art, uh, which means you can pick it up as a print on demand copy on DriveThruRPG for not a lot of money. You know, pretty 
pretty good sized book, 90 page, 90 page book, lots of really cool stuff. And again, a very straightforward, traditional dungeon crawl. So they both fit that sort of same model. Southlands, going again from uh, smaller products to bigger products, Southlands is a Kobold Press suite of books that includes uh, Southlands, the Southlands Player's Guide, and the City of Cats. I did a in-depth review of these three books before. It is a sort of uh, Middle Eastern ancient ruins kind of setting. It is. It picks a particular region of the Midgard world of Kobold Press and dives deep into it with interesting NPCs, lots of opportunities for adventure, lots of cool city intrigue, lots of things going on. The three books together, the Southlands World Book, the Southlands Player's Guide, and the City of Cats can all really work together to build a you know, what could be a multi-year campaign. Again, as always, beautiful artwork, great design, wonderful editing, just fantastic, fantastic product. This was a Kickstarter that I think happened in 2020, but the book was delivered and, and made available for sale in 2021. Outstanding stuff. Vault of May, you'll notice Cobalt Press is on here a lot because Cobalt Press kicks ass. Right? They are they are really, really good. Vault of Magic is a huge book of more than a thousand magic items. Again, this came out as a it was a uh, Kickstarter, I think in 2020, was released in 2021 and has more than a thousand new magic items you can drop into your fifth edition D&D game. What makes this book most, be, beyond the fact that it's got tons and tons of magic items, the, the one feature that it has that I think made it from a cool, fun book to something like, wow, I can really use this, is they redid all of the, they, they, they built all new random treasure generator tables based on they still have the SRD items in it. So you can essentially take those those item generator tables or the, the, the treasure generator tables that are in the Dungeon Master's Guide and replace them with the ones in here. And now you'll be including items that are in the Dungeon Master's Guide as well as the you know, potentially a thousand different magic items from Vault of Magic. It is a much more digestible way of, of absorbing all of the different items. I mean, you could look at pages and pages and pages of just the names of the magic items in here. Too much that anybody could you know, reasonably read. The one recommendation I would make is you're going to want to roll on the treasure first and then take a look and make sure that item is, that you dig the item that comes up because some of the items can be kind of weird and the mechanics can be a little strange. So you probably want to take a look at them and make sure that that kind of item is something that you would want to drop in your game ahead of time. But very, very cool. Uh, really, really, really great book. And I think we have one more and that is Where the Machines Wait. Where the Machines Wait is a, I think it's a, it's a 96 page adventure written by Bruce Cordell. Bruce Cordell has been writing D&D adventures again for 25, maybe 30 years, a long time. He worked for Wizards of the Coast for a long time. He wrote a lot of adventures for third edition. So probably 20-ish some years. 20. A lot of adventures for third edition, a lot of adventures for fourth edition. And then he joined his his good friend, Monty Cook at Monty Cook Games. And they the two of them, along with the rest of the people at Monty Cook Games have been writing lots of really, really awesome products. Monty Cook Games is highly up there as far as powerful publisher, RPG publisher companies go, and now has delved a lot into 5e stuff and where the machines waited is an example. It is a 96 page adventure that dives deep into an ancient, realm of machines so high fantasy high you know, science fantasy realm of ancient machines buried under the earth many layers again sort of another multi-level dungeon crawl kind of similar to scarlet citadel and, and shadow of the keep of the borderlands the big difference is that this is a heavy science fiction or sciencey science fantasy take on things i had considered uh running this as a replacing the city of yethrin 
inside Rime of the Frostmaiden with this. The only thing I didn't, and I, and I ended up taking some ideas from it. I kind of wish I'd taken more. I think it, I think it would have been more fun to do that. But a really fun book about diving deep into ancient, ancient high science fantasy ruins. So a big combination of, of Monty Cook's Numenera setting with your traditional 5e setting. Beautiful book, outstanding. And I really just like seeing an adventure that's written by somebody who's got that much experience having written adventures before. Like you're gonna get a different quality adventure when you when you're when you see somebody like Bruce Cordell putting one together. So I hope to I hope to run this one day. I kind of wish I had. I'm sad I didn't, but it is a it is a really cool book. So those are eleven notable products of, of notable third party 5e products for 2021. Links to all of these products will be in the show notes to this video. If you're watching this video or listening to this podcast in the notes for this video or podcast, you can go and click on all of these and pick any of them up or check them out or do whatever you want with them. Really great stuff. And again, this is not a complete list. There's many, many awesome products that have come out in 2021. Many things that should probably have been on this list, but I either forgot or I wasn't able to get a chance to look at them. So we talked about notable third-party 5e products of 2021. What a year, right? And just the quality of the stuff. This is something that occurred to me. I talked about this last, last week when I got like 1,100 pages of new material for 5e in one day, right? I got like five supplements that came from different publishers and it was like, it was like 1100 pages and, I'm, and all of it was beautiful. And I'm like, what an amazing time for this hobby. There's so much stuff. Like I pay so much attention to this and there's so much cool stuff. Is it too much? It's too much for any one person to digest, but I'd rather be in this boat, right? Like it's such great. These are questions from patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to be, if you want to help support shows like this and you want to get your questions on a list like this, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Go to patreon.com slash Sly Flourish and sign up. Patrons get all kinds of exclusive stuff, but most of all, they help me uh, support, they help support shows like this. They help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, I cannot thank you enough for your outstanding and continued support for the show. Bram B says, I am having trouble with making death epic at high levels. Killing PCs is not a problem. I'm send, um, it's sending them off in a dramatic way. At this level, dying to fighting and, and dead to living is hardly a problem anymore because of things like revivify and whatnot. Only really nasty effects such as the abilities that turn PCs instantly into zombies, thank you Death Tyrant, makes that possible. The, the problem is that death hardly feels final, but when it does, it suddenly does happen. The character is usually poisoned, unconscious, cursed, and at the bottom of a well before they die, which makes the killing blow such an anticlimax. How would you give the player the final chance to shine when they die should you give them some last words sure so death is weird right death in dnd is weird death is weird you can you can quote me on that and i have heard of some house rules i haven't tried them uh, but i've heard of some house rules that have sort of a final final blow like if you're if you fail your last death save or you hit a death move how about you get one final turn that sort of interrupts everybody else where you can sort of do your last big hurrah and that's certainly a cool idea you know i i i, I like that idea Idea. We used to do something like that in the fourth edition days, not with death, but with like when your song would come up on a playlist, you could get like a free action to do something. That was kind of a fun, a fun way to go. And I think you could definitely do something like, you know, I think you could definitely do uh, something like that. Then, you know, the big question, like how death works and sometimes a, a, a shocking character death, even late into the game, a disintegration from a beholder and things like that. You can, you know, that it's still, it's it's shocking and kind of horrifying at the time if, if, it's, if it's unexpected, but people remember it 
remember it later. Someone mentions that Matt Mercer uses a revivify skill challenge. That's cool. The other one is like death is still traumatic. So if somebody dies and less than six seconds later, they are revivified, that doesn't mean they didn't die. And it doesn't mean that things couldn't have happened to them. And this is one where we can dive into the story more than the mechanics and ask like, where did they go when they died? What happened? Did they see something they wish they hadn't seen? Did time change for them? So like maybe they were stuck in limbo for 20 years, right? The, whatever their, their conscious version of 20 years, even though they were only gone for a few seconds, right? What physical manifestation do they take on now that they've died and come back? We don't have to like reduce constitution, you know, their constitution score or anything like that. But we can, there, there are story ways that we can kind of make people remember the fact that death really matters. And generally I've, I've heard that like, I've seen this, that players, death still matters. They, they, most players, some players will recognize that like, you know, oh, that's not bad, I'll just be revivified. But like we even had a circumstance where a character died and they got bit by a Vargul and no one had removed curse. So the Vargul was gonna tear the head off of the, the character, the Vargul curse was gonna make the character's head tear off. And like we tell that story about how he died and was resurrected almost immediately. But that story has stuck through many campaigns. So how, you know, again, I, I, I beat this drum all the time of like stay in the fiction, right? Go into the fiction, dive into the fiction. What does it mean in the fiction? So even if the mechanics make it really quick for somebody to die and really quick for somebody to get revivified, what lasting effects could take place? Does their flaw, does their, their character flaw change depending on this? So my, my thought would be to kind of dive into the fiction as much as you can, but then you, you can go look up. I don't, I don't have any on hand, but you can look up other ways to kind of give characters like a final hurrah on their, on their death if they have a big one. So, Celestius, that looks like that was your question. I hope, I hope I answered that question to your satisfaction. Peter S., I am always very cautious in designing encounters with gaps between players' abilities and monster mechanics. For example, petrifying monsters versus a party without access to greater restoration or flying monsters. PCs will feel challenged, but at the same time, we do not want them to feel hopeless, I think. And I also don't want a player to trash a character sheet for a failed saving throw when the party meets a basilisk at level 10. What's your approach to this? So good, good, good question. I think there's a difference between character uh, monsters that petrify and monsters that fly. So you threw fly in the middle there. And I have less... I have, I have less sympathy for characters who can't deal with a flying creature because God forbid you should go buy some javelins, right? And one of a very common thing I see and something that I think a DM can go ahead and help players out, especially like during a session zero, if, they, if you think they might need it. They, players like to build, many players like to build characters that focus on one thing and then they suck at everything else. And the example is like the rogue who has no ranged attack or the fighter who has no ranged attack. Oh, they're badasses when they're on top of something. The paladins, right? They're badasses when they're on top of something. But then if they can't get next to something, they're like, oh, I'm screwed, right? And I've played characters like this. I've done this. Every character should have a way to deal with something in range. And every, every character should have a way to deal with something that's up next to you and, and something at range. So the same problem with wizards. Oh, the monster's next to me. I can't do anything, right? Well, pick out, pick up a dagger, man, or, or cast a spell that has a saving throw. You know, pick a cantrip that uses a saving throw instead of an attack roll, so you're not hosed. So I think we can work with players to build more well-rounded characters for things like flying. But let's take flying off the table and talk more about things like petrify. And I think there's a couple ways to think about petrify. Petri we're going to pick petrify ex uh, explicitly, but I think that there's probably other ones uh, that deal with this. And uh, I like to think about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which I think is the worst of the Harry Potter movies. When I watch Harry Potter movies, which my wife and I do every year, we skip that one because it's a terrible movie. And it's terrible for many reasons. Most of it is that there's 70 minutes of them in that stupid ass car. 
And I hate that car to death. And Ron just whines the whole time. But the other big problem is you have these kids who are going down to the Chamber of Secrets. They know what this monster can do. And they go down there with no plan at all. They don't have anything to help them out. They're not even, they don't even bring a mirror with them, right? To, to like try to see if they can see stuff. They go down there and they're saved by that dumbass bird, right? Who brings a, hey, a bird comes down with the hat that has a sword in it. Well, thank God for that. Because if that bird was somewhere else, they'd have all been dead in that thing. Same thing with characters in Petrify. One thing we can do is we can make it clear to the characters that they are going to be facing creatures like this. And it's kind of up to them to try to get the items that they're going to need to be able to deal with it. And maybe it means side quests. You know, think about Clash of the Titans, right? We'll pick Clash of the Titans. In Clash of the Titans, Perseus has to stop a Kraken from destroying an entire city and killing, killing, you know, killing his beloved. So he actually has to go, in order to kill the Titan, he has to go kill another Titan. He has to go kill a Medusa, which is even worse, right? They're like, man, you thought the Kraken was worse. The, the you know, Medusa is terrible. And he has to be ready for that, right? And so he goes on a side quest to get the thing he needs to be able to defeat the other thing. In the same way, if he's going after Medusa and it turns people to stone, maybe I ought to go find a way to get some revivify or go get some greater restoration scrolls or get an item that can help me with this, right? So projecting what kind of creature it is and giving them some options. And then worst case, you can do the old, like there's a wizard who's petrified, who's got a scroll in his hand that's still made out of paper. And he was like starting to read it, but failed before he was petrified. And then you can pluck it out and use it on your own, right? I think that that would, that would be cool. Rhyme says, I somewhat disagree just a little. I had a character whose background was a gladiator because she fought in the pits. She wasn't skilled in the bows, so she never carried one or learned to use it. To your point, she could use javelins and spears, right? Javelins, absolutely. Javelins are great, right? So, so, so I think, I, I think projecting the fact that they're going to be facing a creature who has something like this and then possibly putting some side quests in the way so that they can go get the things that they need in order to deal with it so you don't end up with the Chamber of Secrets problem where they walk in with no idea how they're going to do it. And then you have the Deus Ex Machina and here's a bird with a hat, with a sword. And oh, by the way, the bird cries tears and that happens to save you too. That bird had everything. It's like the Swiss army knife of plot devices. Terrible. Victor N. I'm wondering if you've ever had players make secret dice rolls for things like perception and insight checks to prevent metagaming. Yes. Uh, are there any house rules you use? Yes. One of my dirty tricks that I like to pull off is when, if I want to roll a perception, if, if I want a character to roll a perception check, the, the problem you have is if a character, if a player rolls a perception check, they know if they rolled well or not. So they kind of know, is this something really here or did I miss it? Right. If they roll a three, they think they might've missed something. If they roll a 19, they're not really they're not really, they don't expect they miss something. Instead, we can roll on their behalf. So instead of them making secret rolls, we make secret rolls on their behalf and we can tell them we're doing it. So we could say like, oh, I want to check for secret. I want to check the door for traps. And you say, cool. What is your perception bonus with all your stuff? And they say, well, I'll have so-and-so aid me. Like, okay, so it'll be an advantage. What's your bonus? And they say plus six. And you say, okay. And then you roll secretly and you say, you don't see anything. And they don't know if they rolled well or not. And now they're like, well, did I do well? I'm like, I don't know. You think you did well, right? But you looked and you didn't see anything, right? So that, I think there are perfect opportunities and good times for the DM to roll on a character's behalf. I think they typically use uh, passive checks for that, but there are times where the characters are doing active checks, right? And if they're doing an active check, but you know that the number on the die is going to tell the character, is tell the player something that the character wouldn't know, that's a good opportunity for you to roll the die behind the screen instead or secretly instead 
tell them the, the, the in-world result so that they don't know that they, they know that the number, they don't know the number, so they don't know what the out-of-world result was, which keeps some of that surprise. So that, that, that is my house rule for that. Roll, roll on a character's behalf if the number rolled would tell the player something that the character wouldn't know. It's kind of a confusing way to think about it, but it makes sense from perception check, right? You know, I, I want to perceive on a door. Great. What's your perception check? What's your perception bonus? Plus six. You roll. You know, if it's a three, you say, you didn't see anything. 19. Oh, you notice a trap. Or you, you don't see anything. Oh, is it because it wasn't there or is it because I didn't see it, right? Victor, I hope that answers uh, your question. Andy T says, I have a, oh, I love this question. I have a squintillion PDF books and magazines full of source material, best arrays, adventures, et cetera, from a wide variety of third-party publishers of 5e material. I'm starting to find it hard to keep tabs on what I have and what it contains. What recommendations for organizing and, and managing this material would you have? I have read about such apps as uh, Zotero and uh, Mendeley and tons of others. Do you have any experience with any of these? Do you, how do you manage it? So I don't, I'm not familiar with those tools. I don't really use any tools to manage it other than I use, I'm on a Mac and I use finder right and so i was like well i don't know why you're asking me you know why why would i be better at this than anybody else so let me go ask twitter and i did and i have a tweet thread of different people who responded to this which it will be again in the show notes i will paste it here too i will paste it here too i don't know why i did that twice sorry about that i'll paste it to twitch and i was very interested in the answers there were kind of two extremes that 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 people answered with one was organization what do you mean and the other one was here is my ontology my 38 hierarchical ontology that i use to manage my books and i'm you know i'm kind of in the middle and i, I did see some that i said that that model makes a lot of sense and the model that i saw that i thought made a lot of sense and that i will i will slightly modify is you can organize it first by game system then by publisher right and then if a publisher has a lot of material by type so for example, with Cobalt Press, you might have fifth edition Cobalt Press, and then under that you might have adventures, character options, DM guides, campaign source books and stuff, and break it out by category and then have stuff underneath there. I, the, I think that is a really good way of organizing stuff. I am not organizing my stuff like that. I, it's, I'm actually pretty close. I have three big directories, fifth edition material, classic D&D, and other RPGs. Three huge directories. Most of the time, I just drop files right into those directories. The only time I have subdirectories is if one company or one set of products, one organized set of products has a lot more than others. And the example would be Cobalt Press. I have a separate Cobalt Press folder. And then under Cobalt Press, I have Warlock layers because, or Warlock, because Warlock magazine has so much stuff. I, I have Warlock separate and then every other Cobalt Press product. The one thing I would say is that, and, and people will you know, have a probably a fair bit of experience with this, is that you don't want the hierarchy of your folders to be a, you know, too, too burdensome, uh, more burdensome than they need to be. And the example was, you don't wanna, it, that, that idea of game system, publisher, a, a type, and then you know, game system, publisher, type, and then a thing. It's like, what if you have a publisher who only ever makes one thing? Do you really need to have three hierarchical levels, or can you just drop that right into the game system, right? And that's what I do. A lot of times a publisher will only make, really, they don't make a lot of stuff. So I don't need like all the empty black stuff. I don't really have that separate empty black. I think I might actually, I take that back. I think I might have an empty black directory because the guy makes so much stuff. 
basically what you want to try to figure out is once one group of things is so big that it's it's eating up all the space of all the others, then it's probably time to make a subdirectory. But I don't make subdirectories unless I need them. For other RPGs, I do that a lot. So like Numenera has its own, Shadow of the Demon Lord has its own. Shadow of the Demon Lord is a good example. So it's other RPG, Shadow of the Demon Lord. And then I have that broken by product type because Rob Schwab won't stop writing. He just won't stop. And I must have 200 products for Shadow of the Demon Lord. And I know it's more than 100. So... I have separate directories of those because I it would be too much if I didn't have directories. So ask yourself if a directory really helps you or not. If it doesn't help you, just throw it one, one level up. But that works well for me. The other little trick I do is tagging. So in on a Mac, and I don't know if you can do this on a PC. Somebody will have to tell me if you can do this natively on a PC. But on a Mac, you can actually create a tag. And I created an RPG, influential RPG product tag. These are products that really caught my eye as something that is above and beyond the general RPG product. Things that I can use to inspire me when I'm making things, right? And I, I'll tag, when I see something, like, wow, that thing is really good. I will tag it with that way, with that. And that's my sort of best of the best list, right? And then I can say, show me all the ones that are tagged with that. And it gives me a big list. It's got a lot of stuff in it. Let's, let's find out how many inspirational. It's called RPG Inspiration. And does it tell me how many? Can I do a get info on this? Oh, if I do that, it's going to be bad. Uh, 200. So I have 200, you know, RPG Inspiration products. It sounds like a lot, but I can read through 200 names, right? It's not, it's not completely, it's not completely out of hand. So, so I found that to be a good one. But if you want to see how other ways that people organize their stuff, I recommend taking a look at that Twitter thread. I think it's really cool. Matt R, do you have any generalizable tips for personalizing the adventure hooks that typically come with published adventures, especially for the first start of a campaign? Obviously, use the character backstories is great, well, to draw from. But what are some other processes that might help make those first adventure hooks really sink in? I've, I've talked about this before, Matt. A good question. And... Um, one thing that, so I always talk about session zeros and during session zeros, I think there's, there's the session zeros have, there's two angles you could take. One is one good value of a session zero is hammering into the cat to the players, what the theme of the campaign is before they make their character. So when they build their character, they're building around your themes, right? And then the other direction is you get to understand their characters. So that when you're planning out the campaign, you can keep their characters in mind. Right. And we do that every, you know, if you're following Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the eight steps, step one is review the characters. And that means you can sort of tailor the rest of the adventure that you're running that day around the characters that you've got. Character backstories are good. NPC connections are always good, right? Anytime you can connect a player to our character, a player character to an NPC, that's a strong way to do it. So looking at who the NPCs are and what connections you can draw between the characters and the NPCs always builds strong connections. It's a great way to do it. So who are the notable NPCs in the adventure? What is the relationship that exists between those NPCs and the characters so that you can, you can draw those? I think NP tying NPCs together is probably my best advice for how to really tie a group of characters to a campaign. And you might draw questions from the players. Like you could do something like which, you know, what, what friend or relation of yours got picked for the lottery, for the sacrificial lottery in 10 towns, right? Or what friend of yours, old friend of yours went to explore the island of Chult, but never came back again. And you can sort of ask questions to the players. And maybe maybe during while you're prepping your campaign, you come up with 10 of these questions, the questions that you can kind of go around and ask each of the players and that draw them into the campaign by, by them creating something for their, for their background. But it's a leading question, right? You have these kind of leading questions like, who were you going to visit 
in the city of Greenest when you're making your way to that to that or to the town of Greenest, right? Who who were you going to visit when you were when you were going? What's another one? What friend of yours? What childhood friend of yours went with you to the Witchlight Carnival but never came out when you did? Right? Fun kind of interesting questions that 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 can tie the character to the adventure a little bit more and then bring him back. So I think that I think that that's that's what I can recommend there. Cameron D says I'm experimenting with my games and I want to know what you think about making encounters, treasures and traps similar to secrets and clues. I am defining locations and trying not not tying anything else to them instead relying on pacing and improv. Cameron, you are following my guidance in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. I'm not saying that I invented it first. It sounds like you might have come up with it on your own, which is awesome. But that's what I recommend. If you look at the eight steps, all of the eight steps of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master are abstracted from the other steps for that very reason. Each one is helping you prepare a little dish that you put on your table that you then combine together into a full meal when you're running your game. So locations are separate from monsters. Monsters are separate from NPCs, separate from magic items, separate from secrets and clues. All of those things are separated for that exact purpose that you're describing. So I think you're doing it just fine. You were doing it the same way that I recommend. And I think, I think that's an excellent way to go. Nose itches. Pablo T, what is your take on level one adventures? And could you possibly conduct a Twitter poll on this? I don't know what that means. As someone who is developing their first module set for tier one, I've noticed a great deal of disdain for level one adventures. Yeah. I've considered developing session zero concepts that would spring the adventures to level two before the first session. Sure. So many, many DMs and players, many groups like to skip first level and go to second or even third level. And that's fine, right? That's if you want to if you want to dive deep into more powerful characters, you can do so by going straight to third level. I like first and second level though. I think it's a good way for players to get used to their characters, get used to the story without getting too bogged down with all the mechanics that you have at third level. I think first level is good. I think it's perfectly fine to make first level happen quickly, maybe even first and second level happen quickly and get them to third level. The D&D, the, the, the Wizards of the Coast hardcover adventures, they often do this as well. They get they get you into the meat of the game pretty quickly. Some other ones don't. It looks like Witchlight, you're first level for quite some time. But sure, that is a that is a fine way to go. And it's it's it, you know you, you question like when and why, you know, one thing about first level that I always worry about is how deadly it is, right? First level is definitely a deadly level and I don't like to see characters killed off that quickly. But I have other ways to deal with it and still keeping them at first level, like giving them access to the aid spell so they all have an extra five temper or five hit points as long as they're first level, things like that. But I like first level and I like it because it's my chance to get used to the, the characters as characters, not just as bundles of mechanics. And it's a uh, way for the players. They don't have so much to do that they can pay more attention to what's happening in the game. And then they get to grow and they get to grow pretty quickly. And it's fun to level to two and it's fun to level to three. And you're skipping all that fun. So I'm not saying it's wrong to start at third level. I, I don't prefer it. And, and I think, but I think, you know, what works for you and works for your group is what works. So I would try that out. Derek G says, when presenting players with a point crawl, do you give them an actual map or reference to reference or how would you present it to them? If you give them a map, how do you go about showing them secret paths and areas that circle back and may not be evident on the map? Good question. So I have been using uh, Graphviz, although I've heard about a new, is it called Fishtail? There's another new way of doing a markdown-based uh, a markdown-based graph. I think I, I, I made, is it in here? It's called Mermaid, right? Mermaid flowcharts. I'll, I, will, I will link to it and you can, you can create there. Here's an example, right? This is a graph that's in markdown inside Notion. Let me blow this page up. Where you have A is the gates of making, the, it leads to the roads of triumph. And it creates a flowchart like this. That actually looks pretty good. Did they, I think they boosted it up. Something happened. 
I don't know what happened, but it looks a lot better now than it did. So, oh, <laughs> thank you, Nicole. And it's, I believe it's Nicole, right? Nicole Vanderhoven says, Mermaid is native to Obsidian, Mike. <laughs> I'm sure it is. <laughs> well, now it's native to, no, to Notion, too. <laughs> Mermaid is a way to build a flowchart. And you can see I built like a little point crawl here, right? And it actually, it looks like things got better that before I was building this out and it, the, the flow chart was not visible, but now it looks like it's actually visible. I can actually read that. And that's really cool. So I think, I think things got better well in the past week. So one thing you can do, but look, getting back to the question. So I'll, I'll probably talk more about this. Like the, what is this? I'll, I'll paste, I'll paste a note in the thing below. I think I'm going to include this in the, 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 the lazy DM notion template, the campaign building template, because I think being able to build a flow chart right inside of notion is really powerful. And that means you can do point crawls. Here's a really cool thing too. You can click them. Right, so gates of making, I can click that and it goes to the gates of making. So really handy because, oops, I don't know what happened there. Really handy because I can hyperlink it. I can hyperlink my flowchart, which is really neat. So, but getting to the question of well, how do you reveal this? I would have two, I would have your full complete one and then I would have a separate one and you maybe make a separate notion page that you can share with your players that is incomplete. And the incomplete one shows them all of the things that they've learned, that all the things that the characters know and they can build it out. And for a second, they could, you know, for, for, if they only know certain parts, they might know the whole thing, in which case you give them the whole thing. They might only know the whole thing minus the secret passages, right? And then so you remove the secret passages. And then what I would do is I would build out their map while they are discovering things. And it depends on what they discover. Maybe they talk to the merchant and the merchant says, oh yeah, there's definitely, there, if you follow the dream walk, uh, you have to get past the living weird, but then you can get to the silver of flame. Just look for the dream walk, watch out for the twisting black thread, deal with the living weird, and then end up in the silver flame. And then you would show them this whole path, right? You would show them that entire path from the impaled all the way to the silver flame because they learned something. But otherwise they might just see only the forks. They know this goes there, this goes there, this goes there. And you only put that stuff out there. So you got to treat it a lot like a regular map. How much of a dungeon, think about the, a really easy way to think about point crawls is to think about them as dungeon maps and say, how much of the dungeon do they know? right? They know the doors, they know the hallways, they know different rooms. Maybe they know a lot because they picked up a map, right? Think about it like a Zelda map, right? And even in the Zelda map, it's like, oh, I've got the map of the place, but it doesn't have the secrets on it, right? Now, the way to display that is to have two separate ones, your master one that has everything on it. And then another one that you either you or the players are keeping track of that has all of the stuff they know about. And you can copy and paste if you're using something like, like this thing, what's it called? Mermaid? I keep it going, fishbone. If you're using something like mermaid, or GraphViz or any other other way, you can just copy and paste the chunks over that they can see and then and then do it. In Notion, I would probably create a separate page that shows that point crawl map and then share that with them so they can modify it, right? And they can they can or, or they can keep track of it that way. So that's really cool. I like that this 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 changed than the last time I used it. So now I think it's a lot more usable than it usable than it was. So I hope that answers your question about point crawls. Love point crawls. Jason S says, I am running a Pathfinder adventure path. We play on a bi-weekly basis. There seems to be too much, so much to do in the adventure that inserting individual character stories and arcs seems, feels like we're wasting time. How do you fit the adventure you're trying to run and character side stories together in a way that doesn't feel like bloat? That's a good question. And my experience, I don't have a lot of experience with Pathfinder adventure paths, but my, ex, my general experience, and this is Rise of the Rune Lords, right? I played, I played Rise of the Rune Lords and I got the feeling that it was less of a sandboxy set of adventures than the typical. So 
Wizards of the Coast and their published adventures generally create sandbox style adventures. They're, they're generally are less linear in the middle. We, my wife and I like to call them yam shaped adventures. So in yam shaped adventures, you have like a narrow point at the beginning, like how do you get started? And you've got a, a clear conclusion, but in the middle, you could go lots of different ways. When your adventure has lots of different ways you can go in the middle, like uh, Storm King or uh, Storm King's Thunder, certainly, but also Tomb of Annihilation, Curse of Strahd, you, you have lots of different options. Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, lots of different ways that you can go. Then it's easier to fit in those side quests. If the, if the adventure is more linear, if it's more like an adventure path, it's a little harder to add those side quests. And then it might be okay not to, or go ahead and do them. And if, you know, see, see how the players feel, do small ones. Like maybe the side quest isn't like going to a whole big new place with a huge dungeon. Maybe it's just like one small chamber off to the side that just has something to do with one of the characters, right? So you can, you can make those character stories smaller. You can also try to tie them back in. We were just talking about how do you tie the characters to the adventure, try to tie them back into the main theme of the adventure. But I think a lot of the time, it depends on the kind of adventure that you're running. And if it's more linear adventure paths, it's a little harder to do. So I hope that, Jason, I hope that answers your question. Tao S says, in one, of, in, in one of my games, the players have encountered and made a rival out of a Demir agent. This is obviously an Eberron game. Oh no, a Demir agent, a type of secret agent assassin that can manipulate minds, dreams, and memories. I want my player to forget what they have seen without metagaming. Like saying your character doesn't remember that, but I feel like the mystery and tension will be less interesting. Do you have any suggestions? I recommend you do some research into a concept called the false Hydra, right? Go, go Google uh, false Hydra. I'll put a link in the notes below. It is not something for everyone. This concept is not something for everyone. The idea of a false Hydra is that you have a creature that when it, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that essentially it's like out of sight, out of mind, right? If the creature is out of sight, no one knows that it's there. Now, I think an interesting angle on the false Hydra is that, uh, and I don't think this is core to the, to the original the original false hydra or the original concept of the false hydra. But one of the ideas that I really like is what if this creature, when it eats someone, eats all memories of that person, right? Imagine you have a creature that eats them, eats, eats a creature and everybody who remembered that creature now forgets that creature. And a really cool example of this is like, let's say your characters, uh, a woman hires your characters to, she's like, my sister just went into this weird dungeon and I'm worried about her. And I'd like you to know, and I'd like you to, I'll, I'm trying to find out more about where this place is. Meet me at this local bar and I'll, and I'll tell you more. And you go, okay, great. And you go and you get ready and you go to the bar and she's there. She's like, oh, hello. And you're like, hi. And she's like, what can I do for you? And you're like, well, what about your sister? And she's like, what do you mean my sister? Right. And they're like, your sister, right? You were talking about your sister. And you're like, I don't have a sister. What are you talking about? I'm an only child. I've you know, I never had a sister. You're like, what are you talking about an only child? And then like, I have this picture of you and there's two of you in it. Who's that? He goes, he goes, I don't know who that is. Somebody must have added that later, right? I don't know what's going on with that person. And the player like, what? And then the, the player's like, well, let's go investigate this. So they look around, they go to the house, they find it and they come back and she's gone. And they're like, where'd that woman go? And you're like, and you as the DM are like, what woman? Who are you talking about? And the player's like, the woman we met here, there was an NPC here that we met. And you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no woman that you met here. You didn't talk to me. Yeah, she had a sister. I don't know what you're talking about. And your characters certainly don't remember it, right? And they're like, what? So then the character's like, something's weird, right? And so they go around and then they like go back to their camp and you're like, you see, you know, five characters, right? And you're like, you, you wake up and you look and there's six campsites, there's six sleeping bags. And they're like, there's only five of us, who's the sixth? And you're like, you're going through it and you, you find a journal and the journal is the sixth companion of the group. And it talks about all the adventures they had together. And it talks about all the stuff. And it was like interconnections with the other players. And they're like, 
we never had this player in our group. What are you talking about? You're like, no, there was, the person was here. Like, I don't know, you know, <laughs> and they're like, oh my God, right? And then the players start to figure out, holy cow, we had another member of our group who got eaten by this thing and none of us remember who it is. So you were essentially gaslighting your players throughout this entire thing. It's a wild idea. And if you play it right, it could be really cool. It could also be really annoying and, and it's very easy for players to probably lose track of what's happening. So you wanna be really, you wanna be really careful about it, right? And I don't know how you do it, but in your session zero, you wanna get an idea that like gaslighting is gonna be a thing. Right. But anyway, go take a look at for this whole idea of memories that you're going to replace. Take a look at the false hydra. I'm sure that will give you some ideas. Chris S. With the approaching new year, my question this month is about favorite construct time. The importance of tracking time and beats has often been discussed in chat. My question is about calendar time and the passage of time from the perspective of the PCs. I have been uh, DM since Luskin was ruled by the wizards. I've always tried to track time and game. Um, Tracking calendar time can add a layer of realism that helps immerse the players into the worlds we build. Example, shops close early, blah, 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 blah. blah. Am I overthinking this? I mean, go with what you dig, right? So, you know, there's a common mantra for D&D, right? If it matters to the game, it matters, right? If it's, if it's valuable to the game, it's valuable. If you find the tracking time specifically is really valuable, that's great. Another lazier approach that I like to take and other people like to take is time, you know, because we don't really know how time works, we can use time to kind of make the story interesting. Is it more interesting if by the time they're going to the store, it's late at night and, they cl and they're closed? Sure. Is it more interesting that times of time, the time of year be a certain way that it's in the middle of winter? Sure. Right. Do you want to keep track of it? You can. It, are the players finding that interesting? Yes. It's sort of like tracking equipment and tracking rations and other things. In some cases, it's really fun. In other cases, it's, it can get boring. And for you, you know, you and your group can decide whether or not tracking time matters, matters and, and is fun and helpful. If it has an important construct in the game, like, you know, that like, you're, you know, think about Seven Samurai, right? If you're running a Seven Samurai adventure, the plot of Seven Samurai is the bandits go to the village and realize the wheat isn't high enough yet. We're not going to bother raiding them until they've already pulled down the wheat because why go while they're still, we want them to do all the work and we're going to get it later. The villagers know that the bandits are going to come and that they only have a couple of months because they have to do the harvest, right? In that case, the time is critical to the story. And if you're running an adventure where time is critical to the story, like a, a, a hobgoblin war band is coming to town, but they can't get through the mountains during the middle of winter. So it's going to be spring before they can get through. That means you've got two months in order to kind of do this. That could be an area where that really matters, right? Where the, where the, where time really plays out. So my answer with all this stuff is like, if it matters for you and it matters for your group, then it matters and it's worth the time. We can't all say it's a waste of time, right? Or it, you know, it really matters on what you, on what you dig. There are some things that are probably a waste of time for most people. And then there's some things where it really matters for you and your group. I would would say this is matters for you and your group. Nicholas Q, do you have a go-to monster or monsters that you reskin the most? I do. I was thinking about the shambling mound from your last prep video, which I also like to reskin. I like simple monsters. So for me, it's like an orc. I like I like the NPC stat blocks a lot, right? So reskinning the NPC stat blocks are great. The, the, the thug, the bandit, the cultist, you can reskin those all day long. Uh, a lot of the melee ones. Then I like to jump to giants. Uh, ogre, uh, the ogre is a really good one to, to, to reskin to reskin. And then any of the giants are really good. And that gives you a, a strong pile of monsters. Eighth for your bandit, all the way up to like CR whatever it is for a storm giant, right? And reskinning those, you can reskin that line, go through a NPCs, ogre, and then hill through storm giant. And that list of monsters, which are all SRD monsters, 
uh, are really, really great to uh, to reskin. Reskinning, oh, cultists reskin themselves. There's a whole cult that just does, they just flay. They're called the, the cult of the flay, right? And they flay themselves and reskin themselves all the time. So yeah, that that's what I recommend. I think they are, those are really great ones. I like I like monsters. And But the, the key is like, you can reskin anything. And, and most of the time when you're talking about reskinning, you want to pick a monster type that fits the story that you've got. So uh, while I like reskinning those melee ones a lot because they're very straightforward, you know, that is uh, good to go. But a lot of times like reskinning a mage might matter or reskinning a dragon or reskinning, there's there's so many different stat blocks that you might want to reskin. You you want to look for the stat block that fits the kind of story that you've got for that monster. So that means a lot of times those more generic monster monsters that you reskin. The Shambling Mound you brought up, right? I, I, could I have picked an ogre or a giant? Maybe. And in fact, uh, I was going to do the fire giants, right? That that I was going to I was going to have that big monster be a fire giant. But it's like actually I can just reskin that thing from Morden Canaan's, and it's got a little bit more mechanics that kind of fit what I want. So the key to reskinning is that it, it reskinning is really valuable the more actual monster stat blocks you have on hand. But generally speaking, I think if you want to make generic monsters, if you want like a generic monster template and then reskin, I like I like NPC stat blocks and then ogres and then giants. Last question. Jason M, last question of 2021. Jason M, I am going to be running a Cypher System game in the near future. Cypher System is Monty Cook Games' their house, their house RPG system. It is the system that they use for the game Numenera. And I think it's my favorite RPG system. I really love that system. And I'm going to be running it soon, so I'm excited. If you were to incorporate GM intrusions into your eight steps for prep, where would you put them? I can see GM intrusions fitting in scenes and secrets. Would you put an asterisk by those scenes and secrets to identify them as such? What are your thoughts? It's a good question. I don't know. It's been so long since I've run Cypher System. The intrusions, I think are really meant to be improv. It's probably, I think what I would do, I, I think you can make a separate list. One thing about the eight steps is they are not all inclusive, that you can make another step. And you could say like, given this area, given the type of game that I'm about to run, what would be some possible GM intrusions? And make a quick D10 list, right? Make Come down with 10. Making lists of 10 is just a great brain exercise in general. And think about what are 10 weird things that can come up. And when we do our Blades in the Dark prep here in a couple minutes, we might look at that. Like what are the kinds, of, because they have those sort of potential success at a cost, right? What are those, what could those be in this place? It's a good question. So plan to improv is always good. Having a list of like things that could happen. I would I would make location ones. You know, I would I would say, and I think like Numenera, if you read their stuff, if you read Monty Cook's stuff, I think they often drop in potential GM intrusions inside of adventures. Like here's an intrusion that might occur in this particular area. So I think if you look, probably if you look at the location that you're running and then say, what are possible GM intrusions that might happen here, come up with 10, right? Because just because it's a fun brain exercise, not it's not overburdensome to come up with 10 and it gets your brain thinking about it. And it, I think it also trains your brain to be ready to come up with them when you're running the game. When you when you make yourself go through 10, uh, I think you are better to go. DM Chromie says, what the hell is a GM intrusion? A GM intrusion is essentially, if you know about like a dungeon world, hard move or soft move, it is the idea that like you, you are, it, it's sort of like inspiration at a cost, right? So the example is if a player is about to do something, but something bad happens to them, but they get this, they essentially get in Numenera, they get a, an experience card and they can use an experience card to re-roll a D20 or to actually increase the player, their, 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 their character's power permanently, which I didn't really like. I think it's better if you separate 
leveling from something else. But it could be like you, you, you know, it turns out that this thing is much slippier, slippery, much more slippery than you thought. And you go sliding down and make a big racket. That's a GM intrusion. Here's this card. They, they actually get two cards and it's like you and they choose someone else who also gets the equivalent of inspiration. So imagine you are, you have inspiration, you're going to hand it out, but you only hand out inspiration when something bad happens to somebody or something puts them in a challenging position, but you're giving them two and then they get to drag someone else with them, but that person also gets something. That's kind of how GM intrusions work. When we talk more about Numenera, we'll talk more about GM intrusions. But that idea of like, you know, and this this translates directly into D&D, right? We want to have a list of like, what are complications? The GM intrusion is essentially a complication. I should. What is a complication that the characters will get into, you know, that, that will befall the characters? And coming up with a list of like, you know, what are, what are, I mean, you can think about these downward beats, right? What are some of the downward beats that might occur in a particular location? So, yeah, so I, I think, I, I don't, I think making a list would be fine. I think tying them into the other eight steps is fine too. But, you know, go ahead and make a ninth list and just say, here's some, some intrusions. You might do it in the location section. Here's the location and here's some potential intrusions that might occur in the locations. That's probably where I would put it. That is it. We have finished all of the 2021 Patreon questions. That is awesome. I got through it. So I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me this morning, January 2nd, first, second day of 2022 to talk about D&D and to look through all this stuff. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, subscribing to my videos on YouTube, or picking up any of my books. Thank you all very much for hanging out with me, and I will see you in a week. And in the meantime, get out there and play some D&D.